Isaiah chapter 9. If you have a copy of the Bible yourself, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a copy, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also, like Jamie mentioned, uh, have some scattered in the seats underneath uh, uh, in the little racks there. Uh, and so if you don't own a Bible of your very own, take that one home. Uh, we believe, I say it every week, but we say it every week because we want to drill it as far down into the core of you as we can. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know him. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by, filtered through the lens of that knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, uh, then it is wise and stewardly to go chasing after him in the scriptures. And so if you don't have a copy of your own, take that one. It'll be the best part of my day. Isaiah chapter 9. We have now meet, reached mid-December. I know it's only the 11th, but December only goes to like December 25th, and then after that it's just no man's land, right? All right? And so December's only 25 days long. So we are now mid-December, uh, and that means that roughly half the people in this room are freaking out right now about the last two to three people on their shopping list, and that means that of the other half, you haven't started yet, and you'll probably get around to shopping sometime next week, Right? Am I, I'm not wrong. I married one of the freak out people. I'm one of the wait people. All right. It's great. All right. Uh, it also means uh, that about maybe a third of you have, are really proud that you got your Christmas cards sent out this week. Another third of you just realized that Christmas cards are still a thing that people do. All right. And then the other third is just was, well, it, it's, it's too late. Give up. All right. Also this late in the month, it means that a handful of you are about 14 movies deep into your Hallmark movie Kessel Run. All right? <laughs> You're having a blast. You don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. Just enjoy yourself. All right, so you do you. All right, so we kicked off our Advent series, our, our kind of effort to walk through Advent together last week. And, and so the culture around us is, is kind of, it just goes through this annual ritual each December of ramping everything up and hitting the go button on a thousand things. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're maybe not so good things. All right, it's, it's just the world that we have created for ourselves. But as the world ramps up more and more and more and more and more, we have called our church family to consider taking an intentional step in the other direction. An intentional step in the other direction. Uh, uh, to take our foot off of the gas pedal for just a moment. Not as a, as a you-focused month of self-care. That's not what we're aiming for. But for the sake of focusing on something and giving attention to something that's better. Far better this month. Something sweeter and truer and infinitely more eternal. It's not that the decorations and adornment around this season are intrinsically bad in and of themselves. That's, that's not even close to what I'm saying. A lot of the stuff that we surround this season with are actually really good things. Really good things. The lights, the presents, the Christmas movies, the work party, the civic event. All of them are in the good category. Those are good things that can be used in God-glorifying ways. The problem, though, is that we have this nasty little habit of turning something uh, uh, that's good into something that's best. You ever seen that in our, in our life? The problem is that they become something unseemly and unhelpful, unhealthy even, whenever they get moved out of the secondary adornment category and forced into the category of primary hope. Um, when, when they get turned into something that, that's meant to produce hope and joy rather than point to hope and joy. The longer I live in our culture, maybe you're like me, 
the more I come to understand that if, if we're an expert in our culture at anything at all, it's elevating secondary things, created things, and onto bigger and bigger and bigger pedestals. We love making idols out of just about anything we can grab our hands on. It's truly a gift we have. But idols, whether, whether they come with carved ears and eyes that we hope will see and hear our prayers, or they come with some slick, noble-sounding promise that they'll finally make our life whole and fulfilling, idols can never satisfy a need that God created to be satisfied only by himself. They just don't have the legs for that. We may try. We may throw all of our creativity and ingenuity and resources at it, but created things just don't have the legs to carry an eternal weight. Creator-sized dependency. And what's crazy about all of our self-willed effort is, I mean, just, if you just take a step back and look for a second, what, what's actually mind-boggling to me is that if, if we were to only see God and what he has done truly and is doing more clearly, I think we would immediately understand how secondary all the secondary stuff actually is. Um, they don't exist in the same universe when it comes to value or beauty or prestige or satisfaction. We, we, we've got to close our eyes to who God is and what he has done and what he is even doing to even play the game. We have to blind ourselves. So we ask the same exact question every single year leading up to Christmas. And we ask the question every single year because it's a question that I'm convinced our culture forces us to ask out loud. Could it be that all of the frustration and exhaustion and repeatedly unmet expectations of the season have more to do with our approach to this season rather than the season itself, right? We ask the same question every year. Bang that drum all the time. What if by diving as deeply as we can into the universe-shaking story of the incarnation, we don't, we don't actually have to worry too much at all about the stuff that gets tossed in around it because all that stuff feels like dross that'll just sort itself out later. What if by seeing God in the story he's writing correctly, or at least slightly more accurately than we do, all the secondary stuff looks painfully small? So last week, we looked at a massive promise in Micah chapter 5, right? In the very middle of the dark day, and I'm giving dark day capital D's, the dark day. Even as future dark days are being promised for God's people, Micah says that there is a perfect king coming soon. In fact, it's, he's, he's just about here. And in the strength and majesty of this great and eternal shepherd king, God's people will dwell secure, he tells them. He will be their peace, Right? His presence is enough to, to calm them, to calm the sheep, even as the storm rages on and promises to get a lot worse. This morning, I want to look at another theme of Advent. We talked about it a second ago, the, the idea of hope, right? We all have this cultural definition of hope. The Bible, I think, has a different definition than our culture does. And to understand that, we need to look at another Old Testament prophet, the prophet Isaiah, right? 
the prophet Isaiah. Now, we talked last week about the context that Isaiah is writing in because we talked about the context that Micah was writing in, and they're the same context. About 700 to 740-ish years before the birth of Jesus, the kingdom is split in two. You don't have a unified kingdom anymore. Gone are the days of David and Saul and, and Solomon. All right, that, that thing is long gone and it's been split. You've got a northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. You've got a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, is, is not doing so well, but the, the, the northern kingdom kingdom Israel, they're doing a lot worse, all right? Uh, both kingdoms are full of sin at the moment, but, but Israel seemed to have chosen the, the fast track for uh, all their problems. And so by the time of Isaiah's writing, the northern kingdom is almost at its expiration date. It's coming quick, all right? It's coming, it's coming real fast. The southern kingdom is going to last about another century and a half after Israel falls, all right? But their day is coming too. It's time to shut down the north. Just like Micah, Isaiah is from Judah, and just like Micah, Isaiah promise, uh, prophesies the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah, and then what God is doing to fulfill his covenant promises on the other side of those destructions. All right? That's the game that Isaiah is playing. But while Micah, he's got kind of a swing as hard as I can and then ask questions later kind of vibe, all right? uh, Isaiah is more of an artist. He's the poet. He's painting elaborate word pictures. He likes to contrast light and darkness. He talks about trees being cut down, but new shoots springing up out of the stump of those shoots because the life wasn't completely gone. And so you you got the puncher and you got the poet. But whether you like Micah's pugilism or Isaiah's poetry, just like Micah, Isaiah is pointing to a coming judgment for God's people that will occur no matter how prepared they are. It's it's already in the works. It's coming. And at the end of chapter 8 of Isaiah, Isaiah says this, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. So we have the same dark day imagery that we had last week, right? But again, just like Micah, Isaiah is also given a word of what will occur after that dark day. And so look at verse 1 with me of chapter 9. Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All right, so the dark day is not the end of the story, right? We're we're, we're picking up that theme, right? It's not hard to to figure out. God has plans for his people on the other side of the, the promised judgment. Gloom and anguish have a shelf life, we're told. But then Isaiah rattles off some place names that, that, well, we have a little bit more familiarity with, Right? We've heard those names before. We, we, know, we know who Naphtali are and Zebulun is. We, we, we even, well, I've heard of Galilee, right? So why are those places significant for Isaiah? Well, if you, if you remember your readings, if you're a good Bible student and you're very familiar with the book of Joshua, you know that in Joshua, the 12 tribes of Israel are, are dispersed among the promised land. They enter in, or right before they enter in, they're, they're told exactly what allotments each tribe will, will have, right? And so I, I have a fancy map here all right, today. If I can get them to, to show it up there, I got a map. Ooh, you're, are, you're, I see the excitement on everybody's face. All right. All right, so I know it's hard to see from back there. I know the, the older saints that sat in the back, you, you chose wrong this week. All right, so here's the deal. 
What you need to know is this. What you need to know is this. All right, uh, that looks like map two. Let's go back to the other one. Hey, look at there. All right, so the green at the bottom. All right, the green at the bottom is the kingdom of Judah. All right, and there are the, the tribe of Judah's land. And then you got all these different other colors, right? You got Manasseh, and you got uh, Ephraim, and Gad, and Reuben. And, and, and so if you look at the bottom, you got the Dead Sea, and you go up from there, the second biggest body of water, the second biggest lake, I mean, uh, is the Sea of Galilee, right? You've all seen maps in your Bible. And so this is the allotment of land during the time period of the judges. All right, and so the orange right beside the Sea of Galilee is the allotment that was given to the tribe of Naphtali. Okay, okay. And then right beside them to the left in the yellow is the allotment of land that was given to Zebulun. All right, and so when you talk about what land these tribes got, Zebulun, Naphtali, they're up in the north. They're all around just to the west of, sandwiched in between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. Okay, that's cool. So what in the world does any of this have to do, you know, land proportions have to do with what Isaiah is talking about several hundred years later? It's because this is not at all what the tribes look like in Isaiah's day. Not even close. This was several hundred years ago for them. The map has changed a lot. About the time of Isaiah's writing, the, the empire of Assyria started expanding exponentially, just started growing out. And after a couple of really ill-advised treaties that turned God's people into nothing but vassals, and after a couple of stab-them-in-the-back kind of soap opera-esque moves by some Judean and Israel kings, the king of Assyria, old Tagleth Pilzer, or Pilazer, however you want to pronounce that weird name that I can't pronounce, good luck yourself, the king of Assyria, he decided, well, it's time to expand my borders a little bit. I'm going to stretch my arms some, and I'm going to take over some lands that are around me. Assyria is directly to the north of the kingdom of Israel. And so we think that about the time that these words are being written, the map now looks more like this. So again, lots of colors. Judah is the brown at the very bottom. Right above it is Israel. And you'll notice it's not as big as it used to be. All that land up by Galilee... It doesn't belong to them anymore. It's no longer theirs. Assyria has begun picking off the northern lands, or the lands just north of the capital, including the area around Galilee, the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. They don't belong to Israel anymore. So even in the time period of Isaiah's writing, Israel hasn't fallen yet. They haven't had their, their last little stand. But the areas that Isaiah is talking about here, they're already gone. They're long gone. They are places that have already been conquered and stolen away. Many of the people there, uh, from there have fled south. Uh, some are still living under Assyrian control. Others fared a lot worse, and they were carted off into slavery in Assyria. It's not a fun place to hang out. And so for Isaiah's audience, the names of these places, they carry weight. They carry a lot of weight. They're loaded with sorrow and with pain. They are not, they're not just places where the bad guys are currently located. They are places that they used to call home and don't get to call home anymore. They're also places where future attack will continue to come. Because if you're going to keep pressing south, where are you coming from? 
These are not happy place names for Isaiah's audience. What, what good could ever come out of Galilee? And speaking in what's called a prophetic perfect tense. I had to look that up this week. A prophetic perfect tense, meaning it hasn't happened yet. Isaiah is predicting a future reality, but he is so certain that he can confidently speak as if it is a past tense event. All right? Prophetic perfect tense. Regardless of, of uh, uh, speaking of a prophetic perfect tense, Isaiah says that the former times of contempt, they're over. They're over. Regardless of what you might think about uh, these places in the days of the Assyrian conquest, in the days of Israel's fall and destruction, God will make them glorious again. It's, in fact, I'm so sure about it, I'm going to talk about it as if it already happened. As good as, as good Bible students, you, you already know how he does so, right? How does God make Galilee a big deal? In fact, one of the biggest deals of all. See, last week we looked at how Jesus, the coming and eternal strong shepherd, right? We looked at how he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah, David's royal city, right? This week, Isaiah drops the hint that Jesus' hometown would be the last place you'd ever expect for Isaiah's audience. That's not, that's not a part of God's people's land. The wicked empire of Assyria owns that. Galilee's not just poor, it's not just small and often overlooked. At the time of Isaiah's writing, Galilee is the doormat for the bad guys in the story. The ones seeking to do Israel and Judah harm. But how could such a dark place ever, ever be associated with such grand and noble things for God's people, right? How could they ever look forward to something coming out of Galilee? Well, Isaiah's not done writing. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. All right, so there's that poetic contrast that Isaiah likes to, to play up. Right? Darkness and light, he likes to lean on that. He's still speaking in a prophetic perfect tense, though. It's still as good as done. It's so certain that we'll talk about it like it's already happened. Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, lands of deep darkness right now. But on them, oh, guys, light has shone. Light has shone. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in absolute, total darkness? Like, like, like maybe you got... We're in a sealed room. Uh, some of you who worked for defense contractors, you may already know the answer to this. But like those of you who have been in, in caves and, and all these kinds of things, you ever been in a situation where you had zero control to turn the lights back on? It's disorienting, right? And the longer that time goes on, the more and more disorienting it gets. When you have absolutely no control to see what's out there, you start to get a little pretty nervous about it, actually. If you happen to be in a situation where you have zero control to turn the lights back on, it doesn't, it doesn't take very long for disorienting to become an actual problem. To be in darkness and not be able to do anything about it is the kind of stuff that they make horror movies out of. Right? Nice little plot point. But to see light again? For light to emerge when you are powerless... That's the kind of thing that changes you in the other direction, isn't it? Hope is birthed in that moment. 
There's a very, very specific reason, a very real reason why we have and use the phrase, a light at the end of the tunnel. We may, we may throw it around flippantly, but if you've been in a situation where you had no idea where the exit was going to come, and then all of a sudden, there's the exit, you know. The emergence of that light immediately turns despair into feelings of, well, can this actually be true? And as you get closer and closer and closer to the light, it turns more and more into how great is this truth, and let's celebrate this truth, and eventually it even turns into, let's evangelize this truth. Hey, let me tell you about that time. Can't help but share that story. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What a picture, man. Isaiah says that, that, that on the day after that dark day, They will celebrate as in the days of Midian. So what in the world is that about? What is the day of Midian? Well, just like it helped earlier to know your Bible well, help to know the tribal allotments in the book of Joshua, it helps now to know your military battles in the book of Judges. All right? So here we go. Isaiah is calling his audience to remember the story of Gideon. Isaiah, sorry, Judges 6 and 7. Gideon finally gets around to trusting God. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, it's something that he struggles to do at first. All right, if you've never read the story of Gideon, when you get to the fleece, here's the hint. It's not a good thing. All right? We like to throw around, I'm going to toss out a fleece to see what God's doing. Gideon's the bad guy in that moment. He doesn't trust God. All right? And God is going to finally convince him to trust him. God's going to use Gideon to defeat the conquering Midianites. They've got a massive army. And so once Gideon finally gets around to, to uh, kind of gets around with the program, finally gets around to trusting God, God decides to whittle his army down from several thousand men to 300 men. That's a, that's a vote of confidence, right? And then... God uses those 300 men to defeat the Midianite army of 135,000 men. How? Is it some incredibly like, tactical advantage that Gideon has on the battlefield? You know, they go Braveheart style and they surround him and they get this, this, this fire moat and all these kinds of things. Is it some incredible victory on the battlefield? No. They smash some clay jars in the middle of the night and cause a big ruckus. Shout really loud. They make make a big to-do around the edges of the camp. The Midianite army is all fast asleep. They don't know what's going on. And so in the chaos, they kill themselves. And the overarching narrative, the overarching narrative of that story is that they drive out a conquering people in a way that's not just totally irrational, but in a way that would be ridiculous. Ridiculous, absolutely insane to give the credit to anybody other than God for doing it. You don't get to celebrate Gideon in that story. He, wanted to, he had nothing to do with the victory. Gideon's role in that story was that he finally trusted God to do what only God could do. Period. And then God handled it. Isaiah points to one of the most important stories in Israel's history. And he says, hey, hey do you remember... 
You remember how it felt to, to, to kind of cast off your conquerors in a way that totally embarrassed them? You remember what it felt like on the day when you burned off the last traces of the Midianites after they were run out of your town? You remember what that felt like? You remember the celebration and the joy that it produced in you when you finally trusted me to do what, I, what, what you could never imagine could be done? You remember what was that, that was like? So I'm... Um, when are you going to be ready to trust me again? That's the question. When are you going to finally put your hope in me like you did on that day? Because I'm, I'm getting ready to include you in another story that's just as ridiculous. Where the only possible conclusion that anybody paying attention will be able to draw is that I showed up and did something crazy. You ready? So what's God's crazy plan this time? Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Let's call a time out there. So why does Isaiah hearken back to the only God could have done it this way story of, of the defeat of Midian? Why does, why does he call their attention back to uh, the explosion of hope and certain future that God allowed them to feel in, uh, in that part of their history? It was because that is the precise framework necessary for everybody in Isaiah's audience to understand the crazy prophetic perfect tense announcement that a baby is going to be born. See, in the midst of the deepest possible darkness, a darkness that's unlike any other darkness they've ever walked through, a great light is coming out of the north. And it's a coming child. A son is to be born to God's people. And Isaiah's original audience, they would have correctly heard that as a royal announcement. There's a royal announcement. See, uh, not only are we talking about a culture that had automatic assumptions about the value of an heir being born, like, like they understand that faster than we do as a culture, but they also would have had automatic assumptions about kings being a game changer for their circumstance. We, we don't think that way. I promise you, they thought that way. We live in a political context where we expect our president to, our president to be swapped out for a new model every four to eight years, all right? All right, we, we just kind of have that built into our culture. Uh, they are rightly, and I would say wisely, guarded, burdened with checks and balances while they are in office. And even still, we blow a collective gasket every time a new party comes into the White House, right? For good and for ill. Oh no, the world is ending. Slow down. <laughs> we'll be okay. Now see, if your entire existence is, hopefully I'll survive long enough to outlive the bad king and see if his son's a better model. If that's the world you live in, the announcement that a prince of light is coming after the time of pain and darkness, that news turns your world upside down. It changes everything. It changes everything. A light at the end of the tunnel, it kind of feels like a tragic understatement, actually. What God's people are being promised here is full and final relief. Let's flesh out even further as we get deeper into verse 6. Look at it. For unto us, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah says that this kid will establish himself. Once he grows up, he will have the rulership of the government on his shoulders. And he'll claim a few titles for himself. Did you catch them? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Cue the Hallelujah Chorus, right? Time to sing. I have a, I have a favorite study Bible. It's a regular old ESV study Bible. I, I, it's probably the first resource I go to uh, when it's time for sermon prep. Uh, I don't know if you have a, a study Bible that you, you call your favorite. Everybody needs a favorite. If you don't have one, I've got one for you, all right? All right, highly recommend it. The ESV study Bible points to verse 6, and it says this. This is the invincible figure striding across the world stage, taking his gracious command. And man, I'll preach, right? Like, I gotta be honest with you, it is really easy for me to get up here loaded with that statement being read. Woo, if you can't preach after that, you can't preach. Period. It's pretty easy to stand up here and go on and on and on about that at Christmas time. The Lord of creation, sovereign king over heaven and earth, has put on flesh and dwelt among us. And because he came, every single thing changes. Woo! Call in the choir, take up an offering, let's go have some chicken. All right? Verse 6 preaches really, really easy at Christmas. Verse 7, though, is a lot harder to swallow. Did you read it? I read it out loud. Did you catch it? Well, if you notice what it says, look at it again. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. All right, quick survey. Anybody here walking around in perfect justice and righteousness forevermore today? Was that, was that how you got to church this morning? Anybody here today just skipping through life because you have literally never known an unpeaceful moment in your life? We make, we make a pretty big to-do about Jesus' first coming. We set aside a month plus to special celebration. If you're at Hobby Lobby, it's four and a half months plus. We've got special decorations. We've got special songs. Ain't no network out there making 30 new made-for-TV movies to celebrate Columbus Day. All right? There's something special about this month. We even get all the secular folks to play along our party. They don't have any idea what they're celebrating, but they sure do enjoy our party. We throw an awful lot at celebrating the first coming of Jesus, but a whole lot of stuff on that list, that ain't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. So the discerning reader would naturally, I think, have a few questions after coming across verse 7. Most notably, have we all been let down? Is Jesus not the perfect king that we've been promised he would be? Where's all that eternal righteousness and peace that was offered? How do I get in on that? This is another massive distinction between our modern notions of the Christmas season and the Christian celebration of Advent. They're worlds apart. See, everything you're going to 
You're going to see and hear this December being offered up by a lost world. It's going to try to sell you on a promise of a moment of peace or a moment of satisfaction right now. Pursue fill-in-the-blank pathway by fill-in-the-blank product, and they are sure to, you're sure to experience everything that you hope this Christmas will be, right? It's right there at your fingertips. All you need is a little help from us to get you over the hump. Conveniently, $9.99. You know what those profiteers never promise, though? They never make any kind of realistic promise for January. And they certainly never make any kind of realistic promise for 10,000 years from now. Advent is not merely about celebrating Jesus' first coming. It is just as much about anticipating and desperately longing for Jesus' second coming. See, the light at the end of the tunnel... It's not just Israel hoping for a more righteous king. And while there's so incredibly much wrapped up in Jesus' first coming, his life, death, his resurrection, uh, to make payment, propitiation for our sin, it truly changes everything. But the Bible never, ever, 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 ever makes the claim that that's all he has planned to do. He came for much more than that. Which means that means that Jesus' first coming, as incredibly wonderful as it is, as much as it actually accomplishes, is only still a sneak peek at the full and final relief that is to come. It's still a long way off. Yeah. But those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We have been in the same tunnel since the days of the garden. A world broken by sin. In fact, all the wicked kings and kingdoms that we can point to, they're actually products of our own making. But those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. Our people's entire existence since the days of Adam has been hoping to survive long enough to outlive the wicked kings of this world and see the emergence of a benevolent prince, the rightful king to step onto the scene, onto his throne, and the announcement that the prince of light is coming. Well, that's the kind of news that turns the world upside down, right? Hope is birthed in that moment. Despair morphs into, can it actually be true? And the closer we, closer we get to that light, it turns more and more into how great is this truth. And let's celebrate this truth. And we can't help but evangelize this truth. Have I told you about the time that I can't help but share that story? So, so what do we do with this stuff, right? Like, if you've played the church game for any length of time, this is not the first time you've read Isaiah 9 at Christmas. I preach it every other year. But what do we do with this stuff? How do we respond? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, I think our response is twofold this morning. Um, one, I, th- I think we need to carve out some time this month. Carve out some time away from all the distractions being thrown at us, specifically to focus on the light stepping into the darkness. I think we need to make a point of that this, this week. I, I love that our Advent devotional pointed, highlighted the Magi chasing the star, chasing the light in hopes that it would finally bring them to a better light. The accoutrement around this season, the adornment and decorations around this season, those don't have to be bad guys. 
They become bad guys the moment you turn them into the thing you're hoping to find your peace, joy, hope, and love in. So leverage them for good this month instead. And if they're, way, if they're in the way, cut them out. There's a greater light. I gotta be honest, I might have been distracted by the star if I was in the Magi's shoes. I mean, whatever it was, I'm sure it was amazing, but that's, that star pales in comparison to the light it came to point to. It has nothing on it. And so get in there and chase this month. Use the special tools of this month in a special way. I don't know. But there's a second thing we need to do this month. See, getting a glimpse of the light, it produces hope. And real hope, I don't know if you've ever seen it, real hope is contagious. It can't stay inside of itself. Whatever your Advent Christmas celebration looks like this month, does it, does it point others to the cosmos-changing kind of hope found only in Jesus? Can they see it in your eyes this month? Can they hear it in your tone that Jesus' first coming points to his second coming and those two comings, man, nothing will be the same. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside to, each week to allow you to translate a heart response into an action response. If you want somebody to talk about it, I'll be down front if you want to talk. Let's go. What if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How can you respond? Well, it's really, really easy. You meet Jesus. You meet Jesus. Um, Christians are sometimes, more often than I'm comfortable with, uh, sometimes guilty of uh, turning massive truths into platitudes that people then misunderstand and can't help but mock. All right? Um, we've, we've got a number of them. Uh, one of those platitudes likes to show up this time of year. Jesus is the reason for the season. Right? You've, you've heard that. All right, fine. All right. Now listen, if you're the type you're the type that thinks that the top of the mountain when it comes to, you know, what the Christmas season ought to be, if you think the top of the mountain is noble sounding things like kindness and family and being together, well then Christian platitudes sound to your ears like nothing more than a bunch of unpluralistic religious people trying to kind of rob you and everyone else of secular joy. All right, that's what it sounds like to you. But the problem is this, without the earth-shaking announcement of, for unto us a child is born, all you have is darkness. All you have is darkness. All you have left is an obviously broken world and a handful of noble-sounding things that you really wish more people would consider important. And so roll out whatever version of the Christmas Carol movie you want, and hopefully people will be nicer this year. Now see, the Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin. We have broken his law, we have demeaned his character, and we have usurped his throne. And because of that sin-filled separation, we are owed by him the just and right punishment for sin, death. It's owed to us. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that God went to work to make provision on our behalf. What we celebrate at Christmas, the reason for the season is that the infinitely holy God who owed us wrath instead came near. It's a pretty big reason. 
The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as a sinless substitute in your place to make full and final payment for your sin. He died the death that was owed to you and to me. And Jesus was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. The very first act of the Prince of Light was to make himself like his people and provide a way for us to be reconciled back to him by defeating sin and death. Just a couple of minor things on his to-do list. And now is the one who stands victoriously over Satan, sin, and death. The invincible figure striding across history. He calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin, to turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's maybe it's time to formally join our church family, or maybe it's time to be obedient, finally obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. It's something he expects all of his disciples to do. Maybe it's time to say yes, publicly say yes to a call he's been placing on your heart for a while to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, whether that's evangelism or that's missions or whatever. We want to help you be successful in that call. Let's talk. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the poetic prophet Isaiah. Sometimes I need to be punched. Sometimes I need to be painted into a corner. Thank you that you are the God who rightly gives out judgment, but also works to secure people you love despite themselves. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for this season that we get to celebrate him specifically. God, we pray that every little action this month is traced with hope. People see it in our eyes and see it in our, hear it in our our words and see it in our actions. The light at the end of the tunnel be so much bigger than what people expect it to be. I'm convinced that it is. Give us a better glimpse so all the extra and unnecessary stuff just kind of falls behind. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Give a hope that's otherworldly today and changes people's right nows. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.